Hello and welcome. This is your host, Jonathan Morgan, and you're listening to Design Everywhere, the podcast that invites you to ask what if and challenges you to understand the why that drives design. So today my guest is Eric Dahl. Eric is an interaction designer, user experience designer, information architect, and design anthropologist. Uh, Works on anything from websites, applications, products, wearables, environments, and services. In his spare time, he co-founded the Midwest UX Conference, which is a highly successful and wonderful conference I've been to almost every time that it was uh, that it took place. And he's also an ultra marathoner, so in general, he's well acquainted with pain. So, Eric, welcome. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Excellent, excellent. So, before we jump into our topic today, something I like to do is uh, I kind of get a feeling that you know, just with all the people that. We've met over the years that have, you know, found their way into being designers and kind of getting into this muddier area of user experience design and things like that. What was your pathway like? Like, how did you get to kind of where you are now? Yeah, I mean, I had no idea I would land where I did when I started. And I think for people of my generation that have been doing this for about 20 years, that was sort of a common story. So I did my undergrad in cultural anthropology and philosophy and sort of bounced around a little bit in my early 20s, not knowing exactly where I would end up. I ended up in Michigan, and I was an assistant editor at the University of Michigan Press, and I met someone there that was taking classes at the School of Information. It used to be the Library Science School. And uh, through some conversations with them, I found out that I could take all of this stuff I understood about theory and practice of how people create meaning through engagements with other people or through engagements with objects that I learned through anthropology studies. And I could take that and apply that to product design. And so I went back to school and did a master's in human computer interaction at the University of Michigan. And then I've been practicing as a designer ever since. Although I will say it took me probably a good five years to be able to actually call myself a designer. I started as primarily a researcher and then on the job sort of learning all of the design skills and learning all of the prototyping stuff and ex- sort of expanding my repertoire of, of capabilities. But it took me a long time to actually appropriate that identity of a designer coming from a non-design background and not really going to design school. It's, it's funny. I, I think that's kind of a common theme with a, a lot of people, especially in the interaction design space is, I hate to use this word, but there's almost this like kind of sort of guilt of using the term designer, like calling yourself a designer because you have in your mind what a designer is and you kind of think, ah, you know, am I really doing that? So it's, uh, that's why I'm always interested in seeing like how those winding paths lead to the designer in the kind of spaces that that we live in, which is, you know, a lot of digital design, a lot of, you know, working with technology, and it's kind of broadened the definition to a degree. Yeah, I mean, I, I felt like uh, an imposter at first, right? Not having gone to design school and not having had studio classes and all the sort of stuff that you do in design school. And sort of it, it did, I very much felt like an imposter and having to overcome that. But now I teach at the Copenhagen Institute of Interaction Design. I've been doing that for a little over a year now, teaching mostly intro to interaction design courses. So I think I've fully sort of moved past that imposter syndrome, at least enough to be able to to stand in front of a classroom and teach it. That's a good segue into today's topic, at least our starting topic, this idea of practice. And there's practice and there's education and they're kind of related, but in some ways unrelated too. And 
Just curious with some of the education work that you're doing, what are you seeing out there? Like how have things, how are things evolving as far as what you're seeing in kind of the education space with up and coming designers? Yeah. I mean, I think practice is an interesting idea because when you're in design education, you're in a sort of a space of practice, right? You're there to practice, to sort of learn the craft, learn the theory and sort of apply it by making stuff and exploring, right? You're doing a lot of exploration in studio classes and things like that. And so as an industry, we sort of compartmentalize this idea of practice to these upfront things, right? But we don't often allow or create a space for practice as practitioners, right? We call ourselves practitioners, but we're no longer practicing, right? We're always executing. So if take the analogy like to running, which is what I do, or I know you're a musician and maybe people can relate to that as well. You often, even as a seasoned professional, you're going to still practice, right? You're not always performing. You're not always on stage in a performance. You're not always towing the line at the start of a race, right? So most of the time you spend doing the activity, either of music or running or whatever, you're practicing, right? You're sort of trying to get better. And then you have these isolated incidents where you have a performance, where you're actually executing at the highest caliber possible, where you don't want to make mistakes. And I I feel outside of sort of these formal education settings, we as a discipline don't make space for or celebrate or even allow practitioners to still practice and get better. And I think it's, I think it's ridiculous that we expect people to always be performing and no, not be able to create a space for that practice and that exploration and playing. It's another way we could describe that time, right? Just playing and exploring and trying out new ideas without a definitive outcome, right? Without a deliverable, without something that you're giving to the client, without the knowledge of what's going to happen, right? Um, and to me, that's what practice is. And that's, that's what we try to give the space for our, the students that we're teaching, um, and I, and I'd like to see, and I don't, I don't know that I have the answer for what that means as an industry and how do we institute that into most people's day-to-day jobs. I know some people are trying to do it and I've had some conversations, but I think they're very isolated and here and there where that's actually happening, where people are taking the time to explore, taking the time to play with new technologies or new techniques, whether it's research uh, whether it's design, whether it's development, all of those have opportunities for practice that I don't think are being explored currently. You kind of hit on something that I personally experienced too, is that when we're even like in ideation. So, you know, you're just getting ideas out quick. It, there's not a lot of repercussions to, you know, there are no good, bad ideas, you know? So, but it's still, there's an expectation that you're leading towards something tangible and that there's something at the end of that where it, it feels to me, and at least in, in um, and I don't feel like I personally practice enough on the design side or any of the things that I do in my professional life like I should, but I do approach music differently. So I, I think about like that kind of, the intended outcome is just being prepared for when a curveball is thrown at me, you know? So being able to think in the moment that's what practice to me is about, is like to kind of hone those skills, make those connections between my mind and my body so that when that opportunity arises, it, it can happen. I agree with you 100% that we're not seeing necessarily those opportunities for 
doing that as part of work because there's always an expectation that you're delivering something and everything moves towards that goal and practice in itself may not necessarily have a goal in mind besides just getting better. Yeah, you, you said a couple of things I want to follow up on. I think one is this idea of like, what do you do when a curveball is thrown at you? And so in addition to not having as an industry, the space for practice, the other sort of compounding issue that I'm seeing is that a lot of designers that are coming up and maybe they had an undergraduate design degree, maybe they went to some sort of boot camp of any sort of various duration from weeks to maybe a couple of months, but usually not more than a year. They're learning a lot of tactical skills and methods, but they're not necessarily learning, and this isn't universal, obviously, but not necessarily learning a lot of theory of why are we doing the things that we're doing? Why do we have the design practices that we have? Why are the sort of methodologies structured the way they are? And so when a curveball hits, if you've only learned tactics, then you don't know what to do, right? You don't know how to modify those tactics or create your own methodologies to overcome the situation, the context, the novel context that's right in front of you, right? So you end up copying somebody else or you go through sort of blindly following a process and you wonder why it doesn't work, even though it worked last time on your previous project. And so this idea, I think, of theory as sort of understanding the theory so that when things do get weird, you know how to adapt things, I think is something that I'd like to see more and more of the industry getting their head around. And we try to teach to the students both sort of history theory and practice so that they do understand the underpinnings of of what's happening there. And I, I think something else that you mentioned around practice, one of the things that I think is helpful when you're thinking about creating space for practice is just thinking about what's the cognitive state you're in. Are you in a state of making or are you in a state of analyzing? And I think too much we're in this trying to be in both states at the same time, right? So you're making something and you're driving towards a deliverable. And so you're analyzing while you're making and then you're critiquing all the stuff while you're making it. And you don't have a chance to sort of just make for a while, right? Set yourself some time bound set of of space or time, right? And where you say, okay, for this time, I'm just going to make, I'm just going to make stuff. I'm going to make as much stuff as I can. And now I'm going to switch gears and now I'm going to start analyzing what I have, but trying not to do both of those things at once. And there was, I was teaching uh, intro to interaction design for the the year long students, uh, the IDP students. And this was a problem that they were encountering, right? The intro to interaction design is one of their first classes and they kept getting stuck. We're having them work through some frameworks and they couldn't even finish the framework because they were just analyzing each component as it was going, but they hadn't filled out the whole system and so they couldn't even properly analyze it because they didn't have all the parts yet. And so it was just forcing them to just get through the entire framework, even if it's wrong, just get through the entire framework. And then we can start to analyze, well, where have you gone awry? Where is it broken? Where is it not connecting? But you have to have all of those parts, right? And so I think it, if you can start to even think about just creating a space for making and then shifting gears and now creating a space for analyzing, even if you don't have a larger set of time for practice, at least that gets you in some way where you're not constantly analyzing while you're making. And I think that can also drive us towards, maybe we can talk about this later, but more of a systems approach to designing um, instead of just designing all these one-off widgets or mechanisms or UI components or interaction mechanisms or whatever it is that, that are valid in and of themselves, but not sound when you talk about an entire system, right? They're not coherent within a system of, of practice. 
there's a bunch of things in there that kind of like really got me thinking, especially like, like it, you kind of took me back to being in school and being in these groups. Where does this kind of concept of vulnerability play into this? Because I, I think there's two things like one practice can be frustrating kind of by definition, you're pushing yourself to the edges of your ability. So or at least ideally, that's what you're doing. You're getting into that uncomfortable place so you can overcome that. And when you're looking at someone like in school and like, you know, people that are jumping ahead, it's tough to make yourself vulnerable in, you know, groups, especially when you're trying to figure it out yourself. What do you think about that? What do you think that plays? (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, that idea of vulnerability is huge. I mean, that was one of the first big lessons I think I had to learn as a design practitioner, right, in a consultancy was this idea of letting go of your ego and this idea of, right, it's not about you as an individual designer, it's about us collectively as a company. And that was even sort of reiterated in the idea of we always using the pronouns us and we and never using the pronouns I did this. It's it's always we did this, it's a collective. And that, I think, buffers some of the vulnerability but even today, like the day that we're recording this, I put together some a couple of prototypes last night and sent them off to the team before I went to bed. And then I woke up this morning to some feedback on that. And I I had to check myself, right? Of just like letting go of my ego of like the critiques were absolutely valid and they weren't about me. They were about the prototypes that we put together. But I had to like, I saw that arise and I had to recognize that sort of and accept that vulnerability and not associate the products of what I make with my self-worth. And even as a seasoned designer, that's still something that like pops up and I have to deal with it. So I think that idea of vulnerability is huge. And it's something that as designers, you have to sort of accept, uh, let go of your ego um, and, and let the work be the work and not be tied to who you are and your own identity. I think that there's also, I mean, if you think about vulnerability as, you know, the fight or flight type of things, like we don't want to feel vulnerable necessarily. Like it's not something we typically welcome with open arms, but it's a huge motivator. And when you're looking at something like design where there's a craft to the design, but there's also this you know, you can be someone who's very technically skilled at it, but you also have to have that creative mind and that mind to kind of pull things together. So I think vulnerability can act as a a real motivator to work on those things that you probably didn't like being in that situation you were in this morning. But at the same time, you checked yourself, you took it for what it is. And knowing you, you're taking that forward to the next thing. So in a way, it's kind of practice in itself. It's like it's going through iterative cycles of being able to take that and move forward with it. It's almost like you have to have some discipline around that. So when you check yourself, you think about what can I learn from this? How can I be better from this? Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of things I want to touch on there that you bring up, right? This so this idea of vulnerability is tied to this concept of trust. And in a lot of the things that we're designing, trust is a huge component. And it's often misunderstood, right? People think you have to do these sort of grand gestures to develop trust, right? But trust is really developed through all of the sort of micro interactions and every single interaction that you have, whether it's with your colleagues and your teammates or with the, a person using a product that you've created, And so you have to be, if you are as the designer, 
or the collaborator vulnerable yourself first, then that's something that will engender trust from others, whether again, you're, they're your collaborators or the people that are using your product. So that's one thing that you reminded me of. And then I think the other is looking at that idea of when you are vulnerable and you sort of were playing around, I think, the edges of this idea of what I'll call the reflective practitioner. And I think that ties back to the conversation we were having before about this distinction between making and analyzing, right? So as design practitioners, I think we have to go through and do our work as we do our work, but we need to create the space for us as individuals to just reflect on our practice and to think about how we're doing and what are we doing and what are we doing well and what are we doing not so well and where are our weaknesses or where do we want to grow? How do we want to progress our careers? And, and so there's lots of scales that you can reflect on this. And I think those moments of vulnerability or those moments where your ego is attacked in the case that we were talking about, right? I think those are opportunities to practice reflection and to sort of create some space between you and the things that you're doing so that you can not just react to situations, but you can see them for what they are and then respond to them in a more, I don't want to say calculated way, but in a more sort of intentional way, which I think is interesting. And then the other thing you brought up, which is the idea of sort of fight or flight. And I think a lot of us are familiar with that stress response of fight or flight. It's something that I, I bring up. I do some talking on um, my ultra running and sort of experiences with that. And one of the things that I bring up when I do some of those discussions is this idea that I pulled from Kelly McGonigal in her book, The Upside of Stress, which is this different stress response that she terms uh, tend and befriend as opposed to fight or flight, right? And that's that reaching out to other people in those moments of stress or vulnerability in this case, right? And helping other people or asking other people for help. And that can be much more successful stress response, both for you and for your community or collaborators or whatever. And so I would urge people, if, if they do feel vulnerable, right, to reach out to people and ask for help or to try to help other people in those situations. And I think that idea of tending and befriending others and building a community of practice can help with the stress of feeling vulnerable so that you're not feeling like you're in it alone. Yeah, that's really important. And and that's where I think, for the most part, a lot of us work with other people. There's other people that you can bounce things off of, especially in the in the context of of practice. Like some of this stuff I'll do because I like when I talk about like like music, so you mentioned that I've played drums for a very long time. I don't like anybody hearing me playing like the rudiments because I, like I listened to it, I'd be like, oh my God, I would go insane if I heard someone else doing this. Like this guy is so bad at this, but it's because I'm pushing it in different directions than I'm used to doing. But at some point it's like, okay, so just sharing it out and you'd be surprised at how much better it most likely is than what you're making it in your head. So reaching out to people and having those conversations and being in these communities, I think things like, you know, Behance and all of these other like kind of like ways to showcase some of the stuff that you're doing. And so many people just use that as like, this is the stuff I do for fun outside of my work. You know, it's not necessarily everything they're doing with work, but finding those ways to get feedback and, and bring collaboration into even these solitary actions or activities really helps. And I, I can 
after you went through the, the you know, talking about what you were saying about uh, uh, the book that you just read and kind of taking that and putting it into practice, I know you've done that recently too. And, and it's led to you reaching out and making yourself available for office hours and things like that. And unless I'm reading too much into that, but it, uh, you're putting yourself out there, not only just to, I think for your own personal benefit, but also for the benefit of other people who may not have someone in a professional sense to kind of riff with. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're, we're recording this in the time of stay-at-home orders after the sort of during the global COVID pandemic. Uh, and so when that started, so what are we like eight, seven, eight weeks uh, into that at the time of recording? About a week in, I started office hours, open office hours. And so I opened my calendar up to take one or two half hour sessions a day as my time allotted to connect with other people. And you're right. Half of that was for me just being stuck at home to try to connect with other people, whether they're people that I have known or, or new people that I maybe have never met before, but it's a way to give back. Right. So I started that when I was running a studio, we used to have open office hours in the studio where people could just stop by and we'd stop what we were doing once a week and just sort of meet them where they are. And sort of, if they brought in an idea or they brought in a prototype, and so for me, that, that idea of community and giving back has always been at the core of my practice. Uh, I think after 2008, I was working at my design in Pittsburgh and the, I got laid off. And it was at that moment that I realized like, oh, I don't really have a strong community of practice outside of the company that I'm working in. And so that's when I got involved with IXDA and started building a community. I was like, if the community isn't there that I want to be a part of and the world doesn't look like I want it to, then I'm going to start making it myself. And so community involvement was huge for me as a way to sort of feel secure and confident and also to build my network so that I could future-proof myself. But it was also a way to like build up the community and and make other people stronger and uh, more resilient uh, in the face of uh, future adversity. So that's, I mean, that all happened before I even knew this idea of, or label of tend and befriend, but it's proven to be valuable for me, both personally and professionally, to build those communities of practice and, and help to work to strengthen those. So it's nice to see other people continuing to do that as well. Yeah, and I, I can say that I'm a, a benefactor of that too, because I, I really feel like I've made more friends and more acquaintances and more people that I can talk about the things that I love, user experience design, things like that, because of the Midwest UX conference, because of that step that you took with the select few friends of yours to basically create that community. And that community is really solidified this kind of area of design in the Midwest. So I thank you for that because you, you gave that to me. Like you're, you're one step towards, you know, wanting to do that for, say, yourself became, it really started to splinter off from there. Yeah, I mean, it's heartening to hear things like that. And I know, I mean, I've been working in the Midwest for a long time, right? And I've never really practiced on the East or West Coast. And it was frustrating <laughs> over and over again to have, local clients go to outside studios on the east or west coast when there were reasonable options in the midwest um, and have potential staff fleeing out to the coast and not staying in the midwest where they could work and, and sort of thrive and so one was how can we show and highlight the good work that's being done here in the midwest but also i think what you described is how do we create what i'll call this idea of virtual density so if you're in new york or san francisco 
um, or uh, up in Seattle now or other places, uh, there's enough people that you can just walk down the street and bump into someone that's also a design practitioner uh, and you can have a conversation or there's meetups almost every night, right? You can just run into people through those things. But in in sort of mid-sized cities in the Midwest, you just don't have that many people. You, you're not just running into people. People don't even know what you do. Um, and so the idea was how can we create an event that's about people and sure it's about content and it's about the stuff that's happening and the, the, the content that's there, but it's more about how do we bring these people together and make those connections. So when someone gets relocates or wants to find a new job or has an idea and needs collaborators, they have a resource of the whole region and they have connections within the whole region, uh, as opposed to just people in their city or in their, that work for the same employer. And so I'm glad to hear that that's resonating and that's working for people like you and others. Yeah, and I think that's so important too, because especially if we stay at the same companies for a while, your center of influence or your 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 network of influence will stay within those walls and you only know what you see on a day-to-day basis. So I think it, that's what's so great about communities like that and branching that out. So what we're going to do is we're going to uh, continue this conversation in another episode. I want to dig into some of these other things that we've been talking about. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today. No, thanks for having me. This is fun. I'm happy to come back and chat again sometime. Thank you for listening to Design Everywhere. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. We have a lot more episodes in the works and there might be some in the archives that you haven't heard just yet. And if you can give us a rating or review, we would love to hear what you think. You can follow the show on Twitter. Just search for Design Everywhere Podcast. That's at design underscore every. You can also follow me, Jonathan Morgan, at Promo Rock. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, and audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jonathan Morgan, and this is Design Everywhere. Thanks for listening. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.